0: Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
1: Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Sorry about the technical difficulties and the delay. This is not Mary Woods. This is Kevin Keefe, guest co-host for One Hour at a Time. And This week, we have Dr. Adi Yaffe, and the title of our show is Rethinking the Role of Shame. Just as far as a brief intro, uh, Dr. Yaffe received his Ph.D. in psychology from UCLA. Dr. Yaffe's name has become known through his online and academic writings. Views on addiction and his research on the topic have been published in dozens of journals and online publications. He has appeared... On several television shows and documentaries, and also uh, TEDx Talk, UCLA, which I saw recently. Documentaries discussing current topics in addiction and the problem of addiction as a whole. Uh, Dr. Yaffe's main focus currently is on reducing the shame and increasing the reach of, reach of treatment associated with mental health issues. And Dr. Yaffe still teaches courses at UCLA. And he is previously he was a co-founder and executive director of Alternatives Behavioral Health in Los Angeles. Dr. Yaffe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Very excited to have you on. And I just saw your TEDx UCLA talk uh, this morning. So I'm very excited oh, great. to speak with you. That was Good, exciting. I mean, we can uh, talk about some of the it, topics that came up in that. Uh, perfect, because it goes right into rethinking the role of shame. Yes, yeah, it absolutely does. So, uh, as far as rethinking the role of shame, do you want to introduce our audience of uh, two uh, why we need to rethink the role of shame? Sure, sure. Um, I was just writing about this this morning, and it
2: is, as you mentioned, one of the topics that um, I work. Quite a bit about because I think that one of the things that is missing from the conversation in the addiction treatment world is just how important the language we use, the stereotypes we have, and our approach to treatment is in actually exacerbating shame and creating additional stigma and negative affect or negative emotional responses in our patients, our clients, and how, in my, it's my belief that This is one of the primary reasons for the really abysmal success rates we end up seeing in the addiction treatment field, and one of the reasons why it seems as if
1: no matter what we try to adjust in terms
2: of, you know, small changes in treatment or um, different classes for the clinicians or practitioners that end up providing the help, um, it's this really basic concept of how we shame our patients on an ongoing basis that ends up standing in the way of
1: good treatment. Wow. It absolutely sounds like there's a lot of work to, work to be done. Can you give us some examples of what, and just to let you know, I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker and a certified Arise interventionist. So what, what oh, nice. advice do you give those yes. in the field about you know, what we can do? You know, what we're doing that exacerbates shame.
2: Yeah, so what I was thinking that we can actually do in this is to sort of go through some examples, and then, you know, the fact that you're licensed clinical social workers will be a great added benefit to this because we will be able to (laughs) draw on some of the experiences you've had. And I think you'll see that, um, that it ends up resonating relatively well. So I'll start with the basics. And one of the big basics for me is the fact that we have made a decision that the only approach for anybody who is struggling with alcohol or drug abuse issues uh, must require, as a goal, not necessarily on a daily occurrence, but as a goal, must require that the person will commit to abstaining from all mind-altering substances. That has become an accepted norm in the treatment field. Do you agree? So abstinence. Yeah, that you require okay. abstinence. That's a, that's at least what you should be
1: shooting for. As a as a profession, as an industry, yes, that's. Uh, I would agree that that's been the the teaching.
2: And the qualification is probably because what you've realized in working with clients is it's untenable. No, it's not. It's not really a good daily goal to work on pe- on with people.
1: Correct. Yeah, uh, you're talking about
2: all or nothing thinking, right? Yeah, exactly, and, and not, but not by, the, not by the patient or the client, but rather by the actual provider. The right? professional. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, I, I'm agreeing with totally you,
1: and totally I'm perfect. nodding very much
2: so. No, no, totally. So I'm, I'm working on a book on this right now, and, uh, and so I was just writing this example, and I use this example quite often, specifically either with lay people who are not directly affected old family members who get really, really scared at some of the other things we're going to end up talking about in this uh, segment, And I say, look, right. you, have you ever experienced a twisted ankle, you know, a sprayed ankle or any, or any other kind of leg pain either because you fell you fall off your bike and you scraped yourself really badly or you had a, a sports-related some injury that made it hard to walk? And most people say yes. Right? Mm-hmm. most people have had something like that happen to them. And I say, okay, well, now imagine that it was bad enough. You know, some of these have no real consequence to them. But imagine that it was bad enough where you actually had to go see a doctor. You call the doctor. You make an appointment. You come in, or maybe even go to urgent care. And the physician looks at it and he says, "Well, look. If you can't walk on that foot without any pain, what you're going to end up having is this condition. And the only cure for the condition is amputation. But it's not a problem. I can sign you up for um, a surgery this afternoon. I happen to have an opening. And if you go, that'll stop the pain in your leg. We'll just amputate below that uh, or above that place, and you're." leg and you will not have any more pain i think the response would pretty universally be are you kidding me it's not that bad i'm I'm mildly i think i'm gonna just leave this office right now and i'll just kind of try to gingerly walk on it and hope that it gets better maybe i'll use a little cane or something for a few days to try to take the weight off of it and allow it to heal and you would walk away and the vast majority of people would never come back to that doctor's office unless the pain got just absolutely so severe and debilitating that they were unable to function in their everyday life. Correct. And it sounds ridiculous. I mean, it sounds to most people when I tell them that, they go, that's absurd, though. Nobody would ever treat any, you know, physical pain like this. And I say, but that's what we do to every single person who struggles with alcohol or drug issues. If you get to a point where the problem is bad enough that you have to present yourself to a professional, they tell you, oh, you're you're an addict. This is the condition you have. You have this addiction thing. And this addiction mm-hmm. thing means that you can never drink or use drugs for as long as you live, which is the equivalent of telling you you can't do be, engage in this behavior ever again, like you can't walk on your foot. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's the only solution. You know, at best, for the really well-informed clinicians, they say, well, why don't you try drinking again for a little while, and if, if it still continues providing issues and problems and consequences then you have this addiction thing, and then you have to quit forever. But if you present with a, with a medical condition we call addiction, there's one mm-hmm. solution. So that's, that's the initial problem, and I think everybody understands just how difficult it would be for anybody to be willing to, especially early on in the process, engage in treatment that is that um, cut and dry. But then that gets exacerbated. Right. And the reason it gets exacerbated is because we now have used the term addiction, enough in our culture that there are really well-established expectations and connotations with the disorder. And because we're not doing a workshop we're having a discussion, I'll name mm-hmm. some of them and maybe you can name some of them as well, but they're, they're pretty simple things. So addicts are liars, uh, they're manipulators. they're self-centered, they're going to be struggling with their sickness forever, they never get better, they never get uh, well, at least, um, right. they're always addicts. And they manipulate and they struggle with denial. They have a hard time keeping jobs or relationships. Um, they're more likely to be homeless and criminals. So that's sort of our understanding. I don't know if I missed any. Are there any that I missed that you feel like should be added to our list? <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty good list. That's a pretty good list. Okay. Yeah, it's, a pretty, it's, it's not a bad list. I mean, not a list you want to be on, but a pretty, a pretty no, comprehensive list. No, not with that kind of those kind of biases. I'm, I'm sure I missed some things, but... You know, and there are really great phrases for this sort of stuff, like, mm-hmm. um, once an addict, always an addict, and how do you know an addict is lying, their lips are moving. There are all these really great phrases, too. Right. All really phrases too. right. And all and the disguise in of the of the group. So now, we've done a double duty on, these, on this group of people. We, and I belong to this group of people, by the way. and We can get more into that later as well. Um, exactly. What we've told them is, you're an addict, and the only cure for addiction is to stop using forever but you're probably not going to be able to do it because you're a liar and a manipulator. You don't care about anybody. You're a terrible person. And we give them a single solution for the most part. Again, this is I'm going to put some caveats in here. I think the system is gradually and very slowly changing. But we give them and have for decades, almost a century now, given them essentially one solution. That solution is you've got to go to these meetings, and in those meetings you've got to admit that you're powerless and admit that you have um, no say over this thing and you've got to give up your power to God and talk to a sponsor, and then you'll get better. So there's a prescribed problem. The prognosis is terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, it only has one potential solution, which is really difficult to achieve, and it can only be achieved using one method. And then we wonder why nobody wants to go to treatment, and the people who go to treatment perform incredibly poorly. And the entire rest of the medical industry or medical community uh, and the helping professions, view addiction as this untenable, um, un- incomprehensible, demoralizing problem that we're having a hard time dealing with. And my assertion is, it's not the denial of the patients; It's not their inability to use their broken brain to make appropriate decisions. It's that we have cornered everybody into believing that they are sick forever they have almost no chance of getting cured, and that if they don't get cured, they're going to die, that we've essentially cornered them into this situation where um, nobody wants to go get treatment until it gets so bad that they can't function in life, which ends up being the self-fulfilling prophecy of the problems we already expected to have
1: in the addiction treatment field. Right. So there's no wonder 9 out of 10 people won't sign up for this.
2: I mean, again, yeah, Who imagine signing up for an amputation because you came to your doctor and your ankle hurt, right? And then I, right. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I equate that to the housewives who have come to me and said, look, I finish a bottle of wine every night and my husband thinks it's too much. I think it's too much. I want to drink less. You know, they haven't had any consequences other than a fight with their spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, you know. Um, they're not the kind of alcoholics we talk about, but if they go into the rooms, they get lumped in, or worse yet, they get told, oh, you haven't drank enough, you need to go back out there and drink some more. Um,
1: you know, those people are left in limbo. Right. So it's, again, it's a, you're, descri- you're describing one, either all or nothing, or comparison by degree.
2: Yeah, and up until recently, there were no degrees. You were an alcoholic or not an alcoholic. There were... Mm-hmm.
1: Two degrees. And yeah, so one size does not fit all?
2: Yeah, I think, um, not only does one size not fit all, but I think that the problem is
1: we've,
2: we've been focusing on the worst of the worst and we've been developing our treatment approaches for the people who are having the hardest time stopping drinking, who are having the hardest time, um, controlling the consequences related to their use. But we've started, we've become so ingrained in that form of belief. So we started believing that everybody has to fit that mold, that mold. you know. Everybody must, Even if they, even if they disagree with us, then they're just in mm-hmm. denial. Don't they know that they're really just like any other alcoholic?
1: Okay. So what do we do? So I think the first
2: thing that we have to do is we have to come to terms with the fact, and this is a big deal. This is not easy for people to do. We have to come to terms with the fact that maybe... Much of that preconceived notion is false. And the reason I say it's not easy is, look, I've had, I would say, in the order of number of dozens, close to a few hundred of these conversations with loved ones, Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they have a real, real difficult time with the notion that even though everything they've been hearing their whole lives, not only when they've been struggling with this with their spouse or Um, their child, but their whole lives, they've been hearing that, you know, they have addiction in their family or that anybody who has any problem with alcohol is an alcoholic and can never drink again, even though they've been hearing this their whole lives, that that might not be true for everybody. That itself takes takes quite a leap of faith.
1: But I'm, uh, I'm assuming also there's some fear behind that as well. Yes, I think that's a great point. Uh, and I think, by the way, it's warranted fear, right? If
2: my child, I have a 5-year-old and a 7-year-old. Absolute yeah, absolutely. When they're 15, if they're 15 and, or 20 and they get into problems with alcohol, there will be an initial drive in me, especially given all this kind of preconceived notions that we've developed around these things, that if they mm-hmm. just never touch a drug for as long as they live, they'll be safe and I'll get to get what I want, which is to have my happy, safe child, The problem is that that's wrong. I mean, you know, you've treated, um, I'm assuming you've dealt with a number of people with drug and alcohol issues in your career. Yes. Have you ever found, not ever, have you typically found that the alcohol and drug use are the only problem in people who struggle with drug and alcohol use? No, not by a long shot. No, right? I mean, we know that 50 to 60% of them struggle with co-occurring mental health disorders, but I'm not even talking about... um, you know, the severe mental health disorders, I'm just talking about the discomfort and the the longstanding, you know, be it trauma, stress, anxiety, right. depression that they've been struggling with. And they've been using the substances as as a band-aid for those sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. So that the thinking that if they become abstinent, they will be safer and better is not true because that doesn't actually address the underlying issues. And then so if if we can accept that, and we can teach people that, and some you know parents will, and and loved ones will see that um, typically, then hopefully we can move people away from that notion of oh, okay. So if we fix the alcohol and drugs, that's not the end all be all of all this. And then I haven't asked you this yet, but you've um, you obviously have treated people like this. Have you seen any clients who? Came and presented either primarily or as a secondary issue with drug and alcohol problems, but then after working with them either for a long time or a short period of time, they ended up being able to reduce their substance use and end up with, I would say, at least, let's say, substantially less consequences and issues related to the drug and alcohol use?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And this, is, um, this will be a great continuing topic for after we, when we get back from this break.
0: 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: This is co-host Kevin Keefe, filling in for Mary Woods, and I am with Dr. Adi Yaffe, and our uh, title of our show today is Rethinking the Role of Shame. Welcome back, Dr. Yaffe. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You you made a, a, uh, I want to say provocative, but you made a very uh, great segue statement before we went on break, um, asking, actually it was a question, asking me if I've ever worked with anybody who you're going to have to rephrase it for me because my memory's failing now because i
2: yeah, I was just asking whether you've worked with anybody who presented either with a primary like they came to complain about their drug and alcohol problems that's what they wanted to help there with or secondary problem you know they came in with relationship issues or mm-hmm. or money problems, but you you found out pretty quickly that they uh, you know alcohol and drugs played a significant role, and then you did work with them for a certain period of time. you worked with them for you know a month or six months or a year, and they never quit but they actually ended up having substantially less problems with drugs and alcohol
1: through the work. And you said yes. Absolutely. Nothing's ever done in isolation, right, as far as the system. Um, So if you move one part of a system, the other pieces will move as well?
2: Sure, sure. And yet, we have an entire system built on the notion, and you've heard this many times in training, I'm sure, or at least Mm -hmm. coming up in the field, was that, you know, If somebody is using substances at all, you can't treat them. And that becomes this really hard line, especially in specialty providers. So, you Mm -hmm. know, residential or outpatient treatment providers. And it's in the law to some extent, in the sense that, you know, you're supposed to have drug and alcohol free spaces, which means that people aren't allowed to bring substances, which rules out anybody who's having such a hard time Mm -hmm. dealing with their alcohol and drug use that they can't even stop to come to treatment, or the fact that a lot of clinicians won't talk to a client if they're even at all under the influence, et cetera. So there are a lot of things in place to kind of to, to strengthen this line. And, uh, and yet, when I talk to a lot of clinicians, almost all of them have no problem thinking back of some examples, and you know, maybe later on we can hear about some of yours, I can talk about some of mine, where a client okay. was unable to stop, but there was a substantial reduction in consequences, which is how we measure that there's a problem. Right. And um, and so you brought up the safety thing. And, yes, you know, you said that it feels like, you know, abstinence would be the better choice. And I conceptually agree with two caveats, right? One, which is, even when I ask my clients to try abstinence, it is with the full understanding that the reason is for the other issues that are underlying the substance use to kind of bubble to the surface when you don't have the you know, the safety net of substances to make you feel better at the end of the day. And um, the other one is that if we had a treatment system, if somebody was able to show me, and we can get into more of this as we talk, if somebody was Mm -hmm. able to show me a system that guaranteed that if somebody engaged in it, they would become abstinent, you know, then I would at least be willing to kind of say, okay, well, then, yeah, then maybe we should ask everybody to be abstinent. But neither of those things are true. Um, asking somebody to be absent it does not resolve all their other problems, even though they say that repeatedly in meetings. And it is so far um, to, the, you know, to the left in terms of being untrue that anybody has found a system, a pill, a treatment approach, a meeting, or anything of that sort that fixes every single person who presents for it. And so with both of those things in mind, I think you asked, how do we fix it? Well, the first thing we have to do in our treatment industry is stop this notion that unless you completely quit, you are a treatment failure, or you haven't succeeded in your treatment. That has got to be
1: the first thing we throw out. Can I throw a label a label that has been used in the field for a while? Please. treatment-resistant.
2: Sure. Uh, but and, yep. and who do we call treatment resistant?
1: <laughs> uh, folks who uh, may not, and I'll put this in quotes, succeed in that what the full abstinence, full you know full recovery, uh, full symptom reduction. Um, yep. Someone who, who we will, and I. I you're on the show for a reason, so I'll say this. Folks that sometimes the system blames for having symptoms of an illness and then asks them to leave treatment for those self-same symptoms.
2: Sure. So you, okay. you brought
1: up a lot of really great points and a lot that I want to make sure that we touch on.
2: One of the Please. things that you're obviously alluding to is the fact that, you know, when people relapse in treatment, they get kicked out. Um, yep. That's like one of the most nonsensical, ridiculous malpractice uh, deserving kind of practices that I've ever heard of in my life. Um, I tell parents and maybe I'll tell a story of a patient. I'll call him Michael just to, you know, for the anonymity. Go ahead. But he came, to, he came to us, dropped off. I was just writing this this morning, so it's fresh in my head. He came to us, dropped okay. off from a detox center. He was heavily medicated. Um, he was having some delusions because of withdrawal and things like that. So he was on sleep medication, on sedatives, uh, and on antipsychotics, and he got dropped off downstairs. We were on the third floor of an of a office building, got dropped off downstairs. What we got was a call that he had been dropped off, you know, out of it because of the medication. He'd been there for four to five days, looking completely disheveled. He was homeless for a couple of days before he went to detox. I don't think he ever showered in a detox center once. He was there for four days um, and completely out of it. He had been in and out of treatment for about three years, And unbeknownst to him, when he was in detox, he got enrolled in our alternatives, as you mentioned before, and his Mm -hmm. parents were really excited about it because they felt like they had found something else that addressed these things he'd been complaining about, but he didn't know. So he was actually very resistant to treatment when we first met him because as far as he knew, this was just another episode in three years of treatment that he's had. Um, And he had actually left another treatment center because he had told them he no longer wants to go to AA meetings. He had had enough. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't want to have, you know, a sponsor or any of those sorts of things. And so they called his parents, and they said that he is treatment resistant, that he's not Mm -hmm. willing to abide by the rules for treatment. And so they have to either kick him out, and they packed his suitcase. They had to either kick him out, or um, he was going to be willing to agree to treatment. And so his parents had pressured him. You know, and said we're going to cut you off and all the, all the other things that everybody, all the family members do in order to keep him in treatment. And he listened and he realized that you know he's going to go homeless otherwise and he stayed there for another few weeks before mm-hmm. he packed up his stuff himself and left. And he left for LA thinking that he could rely on homelessness services in Los Angeles and the relatively good weather that we have in order to keep himself doing okay while he got his act together. Um, and so... He had had an experience that I'd heard of many, many times, which is when you express that you are on treatment or there's some things you'd like to change, you become Mm -hmm. a problem. And you are told you don't know anything. Take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. mouth. You are not a part of this. You you have no say in what happens here. We know what to do for you. And if you need to shut up and sit down, you'll get better. And the family members are roped in just like everybody else. And everybody becomes part of the system. And then we wonder why people become treatment resistant, right? Um, You know, imagine for a moment, a cancer patient who goes to treatment and, you know, is told this is the course of treatment that is best based on your cancer and they do it. And then six months later, the cancer returns. Imagine for a moment, somebody going to them, what's wrong with you? Do you not want to get better? Don't you want to be cancer free? I mean, if you want to be cancer-free, you have to accept this chemotherapy's ability to treat you. Otherwise, you're the problem. You're in denial. You don't understand how big of an issue this is. That's what we do to people all the time, and then we right. don't understand why they literally kind of lose their mind. They start being able to not being able to trust themselves. Right? There's this term in clinical uh, work called gaslighting. Right? This idea that you stop making people um, trust that they actually see reality, that they understand things. I have these conversations with clients all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, they're told this repeatedly. And so one of the things we have to do is educate the, the professionals, you know, talking to people who you want. I, you saw the TED Talk, so I can, go, I can explain some of this as well. talking to mm-hmm. a client while you hold internally the belief that they are hopeless, liars who will never get better, Does little to help the client because what ends up happening is you transmit that through very subtle, um, changes in your demeanor and through subtle, um, you know, changes in how you administer the treatment and you make it substantially less likely that they will succeed themselves and they feel it and they hear it and they see it. So the first thing we need to do is as clinicians start listening to ourselves. How sad Mm -hmm. is it? that somebody like you and other clinicians in the field know that they have seen people who either have outcomes completely different than what they've been taught or, um, or present in a way that is very different than what a typical quote-unquote alcoholic is supposed to look like. But, you know, that's the way the system is. So when we go to work in a treatment center that abides by abstinence-only 12-step dogma, We go, well, that's what they do here, so that's what I'm going to have to do while I'm here, even though I know it's wrong.
1: See, I've been fortunate enough not to be placed in that situation in my entire career, (laughs) so I've been very fortunate. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I hear about
2: it all the time. Um, Oh, I do too. We talked about, we we can talk about, uh, you know, you had mentioned the term harm reduction when we were on break, and I think maybe this is a good time to introduce it. Um, Yep. And so when we give talks or when I do presentations or workshops on harm reduction, one of the initial questions is, well, A, what do I do with this? And so we we can talk more about that. But the second one is, how do I bring this to the center that I work in? Because they are dogmatic. They do believe that everybody has to quit forever and all those sorts of, you know, typical things that we find in the industry. And I say, well, one of the first things you have to do is you have to bring it up. You have to talk about it. You have to say hey, I've been listening to this stuff and it seems to make sense, maybe a little bit more sense than what we're doing here, uh, why don't we talk about it openly? Because if the clinicians start bringing that to the place that they work in, there will be more and more of that offering. Right. And so, you know, maybe what, have you ever, have you got training in harm reduction? Have you ever done harm reduction training yourself?
1: I've never done that training myself, but I've participated in it. And this is Great. also and i'll I'll explain this in a way um, I'll give an example of a, a, a recent admission to Westbridge where some an individual who came into our residential program did not want to quit drinking did not want to yep. stop um, did not sorry did not want to start taking medications for a mental health issue but did want to stop using uh marijuana and synthetics like bath salts you know cuz they knew that they okay. they identified that as being very damaging to their goals you know getting, staying in school yeah. graduating their relationships so they come into care with that goal of wanting to stop certain substances but not all of them and that's acceptable to us in starting a relationship in treatment with somebody so that is very what you're talking about is very familiar not only to me but also to Westbridge as a whole so that's great and so at that we have we are we do have to break again so we will be back shortly Dr. Adiyafi and one hour at a time thank you very much
3: fashion common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
4: can grief be good for you absolutely it gets your attention Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune in to Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Helping you
0: make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness
1: Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is co-host Kevin Keith, filling in for Mary Woods. We have Dr. Adi Yaffe with us today continuing on the, on the discussion and topic, Rethinking the Role of Shame. And right before break, uh, Dr. Yaffe, uh, we were talking about harm reduction and I provide an example yep. of somebody coming into care who it was not all or nothing. It was not uh, you have to give up everything to be in treatment, and then we went to break. So what's your response to that?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I'm so happy to hear about you know Westbridge's approach to this, and I think, like I was saying before, I think that's a that's showing us that the treatment industry as a whole is changing. You were saying that you've kind of had that, Experience fortunately in your, um, in your professional career, which is wonderful. You know, out of the 13 to 15,000 providers in the country, about 85 to 90% rely primarily on Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 step literature and concepts to drive their treatment. So that leaves a few thousand providers in the country, you know, 10% or so that do Mm -hmm. the kind of work you're mentioning. And so I'll go, I'll go into what that means, but I think, you know, we mentioned that it would be nice if we had more time to talk. Next month, I will be at the National Conference on Addictive Disorder in Baltimore, specifically giving a workshop on this topic. Um, sure. And, you know, I invite you to join me and a whole host of other addiction treatment and behavioral health care professionals as we, you know, talk about passages to recovery, how to get people through and to um, recovery. And, I, you know, I've been at NCAD for the last four or five years, and it's literally one of the most extensive and and enjoyable experiences both educationally as as a networking opportunity for professionals in the field. So I really um, encourage you to come join me. You can look them up at at ncadconference.com and that'll be happening. And then I'm going to be doing a full day training at the Jewish Federation of Cincinnati. So that's in Ohio and Mm-hmm. whoever is close to that can come by but that's going to be literally a full day so uh, six you know six to eight hour training on shame and additional approaches as we're going to be talking about here in a second to addiction
1: treatment and so perfect thank you for that info
2: yeah absolutely absolutely and if anybody wants you can pretty easily find me online at D Jaffe and, um, and if you have any questions I'm, I'd be more than happy to answer them um And so I think maybe we can close off with an understanding of what harm reduction is. And, you know, most of the time when people hear about harm reduction, they think of a very specific set of things. So either syringe exchanges from the days, and this is still going on, where heroin addicts will be given clean syringes, um, or safe injection zones, which is a new thing that has been started over the last decade or so, all the way to medication-assisted treatment. Now, each one of these is controversial in its own right, and... People fight about these things all the time. Um, there's the notion that giving heroin addicts needles makes heroin use okay, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. that it actually um, encourages people to use heroin. And I've got to say, to me, that's like the um, abstinence-only approach to sex education, suggesting that it's giving people condoms that makes 14-year-olds want to have sex. It sounds insane to anybody mm-hmm. who's been a 14-year-old. Um, you know, 14 year olds want to have sex because hormones are surging through their bodies and they're aware of sexuality for the first time, not because somebody gave them condoms. Condoms increase the probability that they'll engage in safe sex and that's the same idea with syringe exchanges. Um, the idea for safe injection zones is that by giving people medically supervised places where they can use drugs, you can essentially eliminate drug overdoses. I don't know if you know or not, but I have a feeling that you do. Uh, there's mm-hmm. an epidemic of drug overdoses in this country. Um, we have almost quadrupled, which is unheard of, quadrupled the rate of deaths from overdose from opiates right. in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, it's just insane how it's taking over the country, and we're fighting about you know whether we should give people help. In Ohio, by the way, there's apparently a law on the not on the books, but somebody is trying to pass an ordinance suggesting that if people have called in for too many overdose um, saves from something like naloxone, which uh, reverses overdose, that they should no longer have access to the medical care that would save their life. Um, So somebody is literally proposing a law that you should should ignore overdose calls if people have used them too many times. Um, And then, you know, the idea of medication-assisted treatment, it used to be only methadone, now there's um, Suboxone and methadone and mm-hmm. there are other replacement medications for opiates. But there's also things like, you know, disulfiram or Anabuse for, um, for alcohol or naltrexone for alcohol and or opiates. There are all these medications. And so medication-assisted treatment is the idea of using medications to help reduce the consequences and the cost of substance use. But this is just, these are examples harm reduction approaches are actually much more similar to what you suggested was happening with your client at Westbridge. Mm -hmm. And that is the idea that you help clients with the issues that they recognize they want help with. Um, The term, the kind of the vernacular in the field is, you know, you meet the client where they're at. And when I give my workshops, I have a... I have a little slide of you know grabbing a guy by his neck as he's passed out and dragging him across the street. And I make sure that people understand that dragging somebody to your side is not meeting them where they're at. Meeting them where they're at is actually listening to what they want and saying, I am here to help you with that. And the beautiful thing that this does, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your treatment, is it creates an immediate alliance because somebody is asking for help And you are helping them with what they want. You don't say to them, well, if you want help with your marijuana and your synthetic, uh, cannabinoids, I am more than happy to do that for you. You just have to quit your job for 30 days, quit everything else, come live with us. And that's the only way you get to do that. You say, how can we make that happen? And then you bring the tools that you have as a professional to bear on that. So that's the first thing is you really Mm -hmm. meet the client where they're at. Um, the second piece is you stay curious. You know, I am appalled by the idea in this industry that when somebody walks in the door, you already think you know what it is that will fix them. And not only that, but that you imagine in your head that the fix is the same for almost everybody you see. That
1: comes through. So, yep. as, you know,
2: as a, as a, as a helping professional... The concept should be exactly flipped. I have tools. Hopefully, I have an entire tool belt, right? Hopefully, I come right, armed with exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, I come armed with an entire kit of things. And then my job is to listen to you, see which one of my tools I believe will work best to start out. Offer them to you. Make sure that you agree and that you're okay with me using them. You don't want. To, I don't want to bang on your head with a hammer if that's not right. something you're comfortable doing create that alliance, we try that out, and through that exchange, we get to figure out did it work or did it not, and then we get to adjust. And the therapeutic process is one of constant education, information gathering, you know, practicing of new habits and skills, and just returning to that repeatedly until we get somebody to be better. Um... I want to jump to that example that I used of Mike before because I've now been working with Mike first at Alternatives, and then when Alternatives closed, I continued working with him. Mm -hmm. And for Mike, what worked more than anything is a combination of coaching, some life coaching, uh, a lot of biofeedback and neurofeedback, and some initial interventions along, by the way, with a safe living space. So he has been living in a sober living. Um, It took a handful of times until we found one that was a good fit because Places would tell him that they're okay with him not going to AA meetings, but then on the second or third day there, they would make him go to an AA meeting. So it took us a mm-hmm. while to, to find a place that would not have that requirement. He was going to smart meetings for a while, and he goes to a few less of those now. Um, but, you know, over the past year or so, he has now stayed abstinent for longer than he has ever since he started going to treatment but he's a out- complete outpatient treatment. He, um, he lives in the sober living, but he's out of there most of the time. He works during the day, and then he goes back to sleep at night. And he has been able to resist the urge that sometimes comes up to drink primarily because he has done so much work and has gained so much trust and has you know gathered fruit and kind of borne fruit from all the work that he has done that he doesn't want to throw it away at the idea of perhaps drinking. But yeah. he hasn't been comfortable or willing to say that he's done drinking forever yet and that's fine um, right. I have seen miraculous transformations that happened to some of the people who before coming to us were some of the most resistant clients people have seen literally by dropping my resistance, our resistance to their built in notions you know, I tell them to take the cotton out completely, take it out of your ears <laughs> take it out of your mouth throw it out, and let's have a conversation. You know, let's talk about what I know, what you know, and how those two things merge to potentially provide help. Um, You asked what we can do in the field, and I think that if we stop believing our own BS for a little bit Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. start paying attention to the collective knowledge we all have as practitioners and the research evidence that suggests that, you know, a good quarter to a third of people who struggle with alcohol problems at least can return back to non-problematic drinking and just start accepting that the world is not black and white, all are white, Correct. all are non-thinking essentially never, not never, but essentially never proves to be true and that if we allow a little gray in the area, we will help our clients believe that they can get better because we're not pitting them against an impossible
1: achievement that we don't even think they can achieve. Right. So now full circle back to we're not presenting them with the leg amputation from the beginning.
2: No. When they come in, we go, well, look, here's here's what I have. I got Tylenol. Right. Uh, yeah. I have got a, got a <laughs> splint so that it can just strengthen. I've got some compression bandage that'll just help you take some pressure off of it. I can amputate if you really want. If it's that painful, I can amputate. Um, yep. You know, or I've got... You know, I've got other pain medication that is stronger. I don't suggest it because this seems like a light sort of a thing that you don't need an opiate for, right. but if the pain becomes too large in a few days, maybe we use that for a little bit. We give them
1: options. Perfect. We give them an ability to pick, and then we see them through the process. You know, Dr. Yeffi, it is the top of the hour, and we have to close out our time at one hour at a time. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing not only your ex- experience, uh, the information as well. it has been a pleasure talking to you So happy to be time. on. All righty. hope everyone has a great week. Thank you very much.